Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Armchair Survivalist. My name is Kurt Wilson. I'm the Armchair Survivalist, and today is July the 18th in the year 2021. I don't have a lot of time to talk, so I'm going to get right into it. We have been having undue heat in parts of the United States. We've been having flooding in parts of the United States and parts of the world. We have been having insane weather in various places all over the world. Now, the elites, the communists, the psychotic Democrats, they're going to all be screeching about how this proves climate change. And they're going to use this as an excuse to control us further and further and further. Many of you have never even heard of the word HARP, H-A-A-R-P. And the reason I'm saying this is because in the past week, I've had at least a dozen people come in our store, Survival Enterprises in Hayden, Idaho, And I would talk to them. They're mentioning about how this is not normal temperatures for up here. And I said, well, you know about harp, don't you? No, I don't. I can't believe this. But if you hide the facts, then people will believe what they're told. So I'm going to play a part of an interview and an article and a documentary on harp. H-A-A-R-P. This is used by governments worldwide to control weather. The Earth is more unstable now. It wobbles more than it used to. The atmosphere is speeding up and the Earth is slowing down. The Earth's core is getting hotter. The magnetic north is changing. The sun is more active and older than we once thought. Everything is more unpredictable. And humans seem always willing to push things to the limit. The late Carl Sagan said, We've arranged a global civilization in which most crucial elements profoundly depend on science and technology. We've also arranged things so that almost no one understands science or technology. We might get away with it for a while, but sooner or later, this combustible mixture of ignorance and power is going to blow up in our faces. Imagine the Earth's atmosphere, also known as the ionosphere, as a thick soap bubble. It is a membrane, a natural electrically charged shield around the Earth, protecting all life from deadly solar radiation. In 1912, Nikola Tesla, a visionary genius, saw ways to tame the sky, to make the atmosphere glow. He developed alternating current, high-frequency radio technology, and free energy. He experimented with both high and low frequencies and electromagnetic waves. He envisioned altering the weather and creating shields around the Earth to protect us from missiles. And he claimed he knew how to split the Earth in two. In 1985, Bernard Eastland applied for patents that could make some of these ideas real. Many claim that these patents have become the blueprint for HARP, High Frequency Active Auroral Research Program. ARCO originally approached me in 1984 to find a use for the natural gas on the north slope of Alaska, which they could not sell. To give you a feel for how much gas they asked me to find an application for, it was enough gas to produce all the electricity in the United States for a full year. I originated some ideas for military applications and beneficial civilian applications in which that gas would be converted into electricity that they'd use to power some gigantic antennas. What does HARP do? HARP is, uh, is a large antenna where we beam radio frequency energy up into the upper atmosphere and we create on a small scale what the sun normally does. And the reason we're trying to do this is because when you have disturbances in the ionosphere, we can't communicate with our satellites. 
HARP began with a congressional insertion uh, in the appropriations bill of fiscal year 1990. In essence, Congress directed the Defense Department to explore the potential for using the auroral regions for uh, improving communications and navigation and surveillance. From there, the assignment came that the Navy and the Air Force were to manage the program. It is uh, people from those two organizations that have worked together for the past seven years. Applications uh, discussed in the patents included destroying missiles. Communications control and disruption were included. There were some other ideas both to possibly modify weather and finally to lift a portion of the upper atmosphere further out into space where hopefully it would be able to deflect missile trajectories. What we do by, by beaming up radio frequency up into the ionosphere, that radio frequency, when it hits molecules of atmosphere, it tends to make the subatomic particles inside move faster, and that increases their temperature. So you can bring their temperature up to 1,600 degrees or so, which is normally what the sun does to those particles at that atmosphere. The ionosphere of the Earth has got enormous amount of energy. There are 8,000 thunderstorms going on all over the Earth at any given moment. There are millions of amperes of electricity uh, pouring to the Earth from uh, lightning strikes. And HARP could create a trigger effect. In 1983, I did radio tomography with 30 watts looking for oil in the ground. I found 26 oil wells over a nine-state area, and 100% of the time was accurate with just 30 watts of power beaming straight into solid rock. HARP uses a billion watts beamed straight into the ionosphere for experiments. Picture these strings on the piano as layers of the earth. Each one has its own frequency. What we used to do is beam radio waves into the ground and it would vibrate any strings that were present in the ground. We might get a sound back like and we'd say that's natural gas. We might get a sound back like and we'd say that's crude oil. We were able to identify each frequency. We accomplished this with just 30 watts of radio power. If you do this with a billion watts the vibrations are so violent that the entire piano would shake. In fact, the whole house would shake. In fact, the vibrations could be so severe underground that could even cause an earthquake. While we feel that HARP is a unique facility, it's not the only one like it in the world. It has some, some capabilities that uh, we feel are better than some of the others. You can change the frequencies. Um, you can shift the beam so that you can, you can move it from one part of the, of the ionosphere to another. And it has quite a bit more power than some of the other facilities throughout the world that are doing the same kinds of research. I chose what's called a phased array antenna for the patents because it can be aimed. Picture holding your microwave oven in your hands with the door open. Then you can move it around and send those microwaves different directions. And for these applications where I wanted precise control of where the power was, I felt that was the best type of antenna to use. And that is the kind that HARP has built. What we can do with an antenna is change the portion of the sky into which we insert the energy. HARP can create some of the effects that the sun creates that are similar to the aurora borealis. HARP can paint designs in the sky, if you will. It can take the beam and move it in any pattern that, you, that the scientist who's doing an experiment might want to do. What I'm holding in my hands is an electrodeless lamp. In it, I have a low atmosphere gas, somewhat similar to the atmosphere above the Earth. 
I'm now going to put this in the microwave oven, which will irradiate it with about one watt per square centimeter. You know, you put one watt out and you've got the fields necessary to break down the air or whatever happens. And you see all of the motion of the plasma. That's typical of what will happen at high altitude where the ionosphere gets irradiated with these big beams. That was one watt per centimeter. HARP focuses 3.6 million watts and squeezes it into a billion watt or gigawatt beam. We're squeezing the megawatts into a narrow beam. Then in a very tiny area, you can create an, what's it called an effective gigawatt. The Earth is a web of interconnections. How do we know what we're doing when we blast the upper atmosphere with a huge amount of energy? It takes a tiny, tiny amount of energy to release a huge amount of energy. It's the same as, as a bullet, for example, if uh, you have the primer on the back of a, of a bullet and that primer releases a tiny amount of energy, but it triggers the larger power in the bullet itself. And HARP is playing with the energy system of the Earth. In the HARP program, we have, I believe right now, 18 different colleges and universities that are working the, the program with us. University scientists are interested because they're studying science, and this is, this is a major effect uh, on the Earth, and so they want to know more about what it is and what it does. HARP began in the 1980s, and we were just beginning to learn about chaos theory, how a tiny stimulus can change the dynamics of a living system like the human body or the whole living Earth. I don't think the people who developed HARP were even aware of that science or its impact in the life sciences. Today, our knowledge is much bigger about how tiny effects can drastically shift the health or well-being of a living thing. It is possible with a big beam to take a part of that upper atmosphere and push it out for it. What they're not paying any attention to is what's happening to the ionosphere while it's being held 80 miles out into space by this high energy beam. It's heating up and all of the molecules in that ionosphere region are absorbing energy out of that radio beam. And if they pick the right frequency to push that plume out into space, that energy may discharge back out of the ionosphere, back down the radio beam and strike the earth. And it would be about a hundred times the energy released out of a thunderbolt. In certain applications, the military acknowledges that it can literally lift the ionosphere. And what they say is, it's not a problem, it's a short period of time. Yet, when you lift the ionosphere up, the lower atmosphere rushes in and fills that void, which changes localized weather patterns. HARP papers say that they intend to lift up a part of the ionosphere, which creates a, a hole, and they say that it heals over quickly. But what if happens if you create enough holes that it just can't quite take care of it fast enough? If the hole means that the uh, neutral density has been somewhat modified, then if you want to call that a hole, maybe uh, that's fine. The hole would be at least 30 miles long, half a mile deep, 50 to 60 miles above the Earth. I imagine there, there are hundreds of satellites that have interactions with the ionosphere. They're all doing their lo own local modification of the ionosphere. They're all creating their own holes. Satellites, rockets, uh, space shuttle flights, not just HARP, but many technologies out there in space are creating holes in heaven. 
As to this question of injecting more high-energy particles into the Earth's electrical system, the ionosphere is a dynamic system, ever-moving, ever-changing. I don't think anyone on this planet really knows the point where enough is enough. This was the planning document that really brought HARP into being, and the absolute requirements ran from one gigawatt, which is a billion watts, all the way up to 10 billion watts of effective radiated power with a desired level of 100 billion watts. At its biggest size suggested, if you beamed it for an hour and a half, that would equal the energy in a hydrogen bomb. It's just a person's concept of what might possibly be done. Doesn't necessarily mean the government endorsed it or not. What are the, what's the power when it pulses? And I can't find that in any of the documents that I've looked at. If you have a very small battery, you can put it in a small pen light and turn it on and have for some time a little bit of light. You can take the exactly same battery and put it in your camera. When you flash that camera, the light will blind you. The nature of radar and these electromagnetic supplies is they can usually be pulsed. So one very good question for people to ask is what is the peak power of that antenna when it pulses at its full capability? To make it bigger, all they'd have to do is add additional elements. In fact, the request for proposal specified a design that could be added onto. The first module is what's called the dem developmental prototype, and that's 48 antennas in a 6x8 array. What you're looking at is the harp site in Alaska, or at least about one-fifth of the harp site. When this is completed, you'll see about 180 of these poles. Together, those 180 poles make up one single antenna designed along with these cross members and a wire mesh here to send all the information, all the radio frequency energy that is generated by these uh, trailers up into the ionosphere. As they acknowledge in their papers when they say, we don't know what will happen when we push it to the next level of effects. The military record explains it as phase one um, of a multi-phase project. It's going to get bigger, it's going to continue, and, and that's again why we're concerned. There's always a limit to everything, although we don't know exactly where that limit is. We are surrounded and bombarded by millions of megawatts of natural energy because the sun blows a solar wind which crashes towards the Earth. Since the Earth is a giant magnet, the magnetic field called the magnetosphere protects us. HARP's original patents were designed to distort or alter the magnetosphere. It's interesting to compare humans and the Earth. The Earth is, has a magnetic field. Humans actually generate a magnetic field too, especially in our hearts and brains. Every cell in our body has a powerful magnetic substance called magnetite, which responds sensitively to magnetic fields in our environment. If HARP is altering the magnetosphere, which is the magnetic field of the earth and all around it. Surely this will have an effect on our health and on our physiology. HARP's combined antennae generate a focused billion-watt high-frequency radio beam which penetrates the lower ionosphere and interacts with the currents of the auroral electrojet. During this modification, this pulsing beam stimulates the ionosphere, creating ELF waves which can move great distances through the lower atmosphere and penetrate into the earth to find missile silos, underground tunnels, and communicate with hidden submarines. There's a current flowing through here called the auroral electrojet. You deposit energy in there, you're changing the medium, okay, and you're changing the current, and you're generating ELF and VLF waves. In simple terms, the electrojet is a river of electricity high above us. And a paper that I've read recently adds to the indications that they intend to cause it to dip down closer to the earth so it can be tap or a huge electrical power generating station, which is insanity because they don't know what they're dealing with. 
They're dealing with the planet's electrical system. The electrojet affects global weather. Sometimes during a magnetic storm, for instance, it touches the Earth. It can knock out telephone cables and power grids. What Harp is, is capable of doing is to modify the electrojet. By modifying the electrojet, that, that current in the ionosphere, it has a capability of generating low-frequency waves. What essentially uh, the system does, it's different, is instead of the radio frequency energy dissipating as it goes up from the antenna array, it's actually focused. And the larger the antenna array, the higher they can focus the energy. And once they get the energy up into the ionosphere, depending on, on what they want to do, they can create a secondary frequency causing the ionosphere to vibrate, sending that signal back down to the Earth. And what that essentially does is allow them the ability to communicate at very high data rates with uh, submarines, also allows for the um, possibility of Earth penetrating tomography, or in the vernacular, would be like x-raying the Earth or looking into the Earth several kilometers deep. I heard uh, one of the scientists point out they can make these ELF waves penetrate the Earth and get an image when that comes back. When I did this in 85, that kind of capability did not exist. We, in fact, are doing experiments, or plan to do experiments, to see if we can detect tunnels underground. There is a way of being able to use this type of technology to be able to look for minerals that can be just below the surface of the earth. Oil, gas, uh, different types of ore. Harp can be used to explore oils or gold mine and the like. Basically because the signal, low frequency signal can penetrate deeper into the earth or the water or the ocean than the high frequency signal. But this same kind of signal, signals in the same frequency range, can affect uh, human mood. The human brain operates on very low frequencies. For example, when we're thinking, I mean, uh, actively, we're generating about 13, 14 cycles per second. When we're meditating, we're generating eight cycles per second. And when we're asleep, the brain waves are running at about four cycles per second. And HARP is capable of generating all of these frequencies. These kinds of signals can control the human brain. And if you can control these frequencies and multiples of these frequencies and various combinations, you can control all kinds of emotions. You can generate happiness, you could generate sadness, you can generate any mood you want. We are immersed in ELF waves. And those, as far as I know, maybe they are affecting us, but, but, but these waves are minuscule compared to those. You know, the issue of you know, ELF, extremely low frequencies affecting um, mental states of, of individuals is not new. It goes back to Yale University and the work of Jose Delgado, which is well recognized in the literature. He started first using implants in the brain. He then um, used radio frequency with implants and eventually he found that energy at one fiftieth of what the earth naturally produces could in fact in certain frequency ranges trigger uh, huge mood swings. I know the physical effect but not the biological effect. It's a different area. I was considered a child prodigy in electronics. My entire life has been devoted to the study of the effects of electromagnetic energies on the human mind. When I was 13 years old, I invented a device that transmits sound to the human brain using electromagnetic waves. So this is my field. I've been studying this field for over 40 years. And HARP scares me because I know what it can do. I know that HARP can be used to control the human mind. Humans are like balls of energy. We're made up of electricity and magnetic energy, just like the Earth. Are humans made up of energy? Well, what do they say? We're 90% water, 
uh, but the rest of it is an electrochemical, and that's a form of energy, yes. All living things are exquisitely sensitive to some of the lowest levels of energy. We just couldn't imagine this, and it's been the subject of hot debate. How can life be so sensitive to the tiniest amounts of energy? But because this is how we are bioregulated, by virtue of tiny energy transactions within our body, and also coming from the earth, this is indeed the case. There are many different electromagnetic uh, projects and technologies out there that are affecting our health today. This document from Maxwell Air Force Base lays out the use of electromagnetic weapons technologies for debilitating human beings. Using electromagnetic warfare against human beings, you can cause disease, you can cause hysteria, or you can cause passivity for population control. Extremely low frequencies affect us because they are the same frequencies that our brains output. And when they're in the environment around us, our brains try to entrain to them. So our brains try to mimic those signals. And if those signals are not good ones for our behavior, then we can fall apart. We can behave differently. We could get sick. We could feel very stressed and not know why. Once in a while when you have a power outage, uh, most people can identify the fact that they have a release of tension. The minute the electricity goes out, they feel an inner relaxation, a tension release, and when the power goes back on, the tension returns. So this is something uh, that most of us can feel. Everyone has a certain sensitivity to electromagnetic waves. It's just that some people are more sensitive than others. The symptoms that I discovered in my research caused by electromagnetic frequencies are anxiety, depression, diarrhea, dizziness, extreme fatigue, headaches, lightheadedness, mood swings, nausea, nighttime increase in urination, pulse rate, a sudden increase, shortness of breath, tingling, prickling feeling of the skin, vertigo, nosebleeds, blood pressure increase, and body tremors. You can also cause cancer. You can disrupt the genetic structure of our cells. You can cause long-term damage in terms of mutagenic damage over generations, or you can cause very short-term damage, and you can also, you can actually cause somebody to just have their cells fall apart and hemorrhage to death. I found from people who were writing me and calling me from all over the country that they were suffering from either one or all of these same symptoms, and every single one of them lived next, uh, close by to a transmitter. You know this, from Harp to Gwynn, to these towers that are all over the United States now. Gwynn stands for Ground Wave Emergency Network. In nuclear attack, the ionosphere would be essentially destroyed by air bursts of nuclear weapons, and there wouldn't be any reflection. All communication links would go out. It was thought of as an emergency backup communication link uh, in case of nuclear attack. The weapons technologies are changing so dramatically at this particular time, it'd be like equating introduction of gunpowder to the West or the beginning of the atomic age earlier this century. And that's what's happening with electromagnetic weapons technologies today. The Air Force Phillips Laboratory is the Air Force's primary laboratory for doing space research, and that involves things like HARP, studying the ionosphere. Anything in the Air Force for space, we, we look into, and that includes weapons for space application, one of which is developing plasma toroids, projectiles made of plasma, essentially the atmosphere of stars, being able to harness that energy and to be able to fire it at a target. 
uh, we have a device called Shiva. Shiva is a large capacitor bank. Capacitors store electrical energy. And then in a very short time, we release that energy. In about two one hundred millionths of a second, we will release the same amount of energy as the entire U.S. electrical production for that same instant in time, where the, the electrons rip from their orbits and you have a, a soupy, gaseous mixture, thousands of degrees hot. Potentially a, a very serious weapon. Electromagnetic warfare can also be used in coordination with ionospheric warfare. After I had actually left the program in 1987, one of the last communications I had with ARCO indicated that there had been a contract awarded for ionospheric warfare studies. In other words, using the ionosphere as an amplifier and as a broadcast medium. What we're actually doing with the ionosphere at that point is we're not just reflecting a signal, we are amplifying the signal. We are causing it to become much, much more intense, hundreds of thousands of times more intense than it would have been otherwise. We're broadcasting that signature over a large area of the Earth. What HARP is, is basically a ground-based Star Wars weapon technology. I'm the Attorney General and Environmental Program Manager for the Upper Cook Inlet Environmental Protection Consortium. We've been working on HARP for many years. They've located HARP at Gakona because of the magnetosphere is closest to the surface of the Earth. And they need that magnetic pole to do their uh, shots into the ionosphere and stratosphere. With HARP and however long it's been uh, on the drawing board, the people here haven't known about it that long. Change from one thing to another. What a lot of people are not aware of is its ground-based Star Wars technology. And the United States Congress has said that they quit funding Star Wars, so they call it everything else but Star Wars to get it funded. The application described in the 1991 patent would be such that if anybody were to fire a missile from any direction, anywhere, to another point on Earth, it would intersect this relativistic layer and be uh, basically exploded. As a scientist, you do like to be recognized for things you've done. And because I couldn't write to the press, I'm under ARCO confidentiality. I sent a letter to Laud Cook, the chairman of the board of ARCO, and received actually a very nice letter back, uh, complimenting me for my contributions and assuring me that they would inform the heart people of my contribution. If you read the patents, I was thinking of ways to use it defensively. One was as an anti-satellite device. You could make these electrons in space and hurt a satellite. Uh, that could be used either for offense or defense. We could hurt the enemy's communications while maintaining ours, and I was interested to note that that was one of the things said in the HARP uh, basic technical document. Star Wars was the state-of-the-art military technology of the 80s, but in the 90s and in the new millennium, it's going to be electromagnetic warfare. What we do know about electromagnetic systems and electromagnetic warfare is becoming even more interesting. As late as April 28, 1997, U.S. Secretary of Defense Cohen announced at Georgia's, uh, University of Georgia that, in fact, geophysical warfare was becoming a more um, intense problem. In fact, they even speculated that terrorist organizations would have systems that could modify weather, create volcanic eruptions, or even cause earthquakes using electromagnetic waves. You know, earthquakes is another thing. We have had a lot of them, a lot of volcanoes more in the last few years, uh, whether or not that is just a cycle of uh, happenings, because we've had we've had a history of earthquakes and volcanoes throughout uh, recorded history. 
but it just seems to me like that it's more often uh, and that there has to be some connection with some of the things that we as humans are doing uh, to our earth. The issue of earthquakes has been you know looked at by other specialists even going back to the work of J.F. Gordon MacDonald when he was at UCLA in the late 60s he was also a science advisor Lyndon Johnson is a specialist in geophysical warfare he asserted then if you could ever get enough energy in at just the right frequency and just the right waveform you could in fact trigger these kinds of events and I think that's exactly what uh, the Secretary of Defense Cohen was saying just a few days ago was it's this idea that now terrorists may possess this kind of technology it's obvious I mean if, if we're concerned that terrorists have it we certainly do back in 1912 Nikola Tesla said it was possible to split the planet by combining the correct vibrations with the resonance of the planet itself the idea of, of affecting weather for many people, it gets to the point where you say, well, you know, can that even be real? And when you go back in time, even to 1976, the United States, along with over 60 other countries, signed an accord where we agreed uh, to not use weather uh, manipulation as a weapon of war. This is before biological and chemical treaties, before many of the nuclear disarmament treaties. And yet, that was such a big threat in 76. Has the science progressed? Certainly. We're in this sea of energy. We're in a sea of gases. We're in a sea of particles that are charged. And they're moving constantly, just like a current in the ocean, just like the wind in the atmosphere. This current forms. And you draw and you attract these particles. Well, Wilhelm Reich attracted these particles. He pointed it at the sky and he said, you want clouds to be built there? You got a drought? He would point the device at that place and clouds would form there. In the 40s, there was interest in weather modification, that by the 50s, there was actual experimentation in that area. By the 1960s, that area had advanced substantially. Well, there have been programs with the salting cloud, you know, salting things with the silver iodide, and there's been some experiments where people from airplanes threw sh chaff out, the little pieces of metal, and tried to get those to absorb power. We have done such damage to the thermal balance, to the hydrologic balance of this planet at this point. We are seeing more and more disasters. You have to watch the news. You have to notice these things. You can't just take Prozac and, and forget about it. And the next day you see the, oh yeah, the whole, the whole Ohio River Valley was just flooded. Billions of dollars of damage. Thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people left without homes. And they actually say that they can make weather. Well, tell me, have you noticed any good weather here lately? The thing that people don't take into account is we are changing the entire density of our atmosphere, the viscosity of the atmosphere, the atmosphere's ability to flow and be fluid, to be freely flowing. We're changing that. Today we have a number of technologies, not just HARP, but satellites and other ionosphere heaters placed in strategic locations all over the world that can create the disruptions in lightning, Here's a paper that was recently unearthed that talks about creating what's called a highly ionized column up through the atmosphere. Uh, it might trigger lightning. If lightning was ready to occur and suddenly this conductor was thrust in the middle of, you know, into the, into the situation, uh, then yeah, it could. If you beam this radio wave into the ionosphere and you continually charge it up, not only are you sending energy into the ionosphere, but you're providing a path for energy to come back down out of the ionosphere. In other words, they can create massive discharge of lightning bigger than anything we've ever seen on this planet. 
And if you aim the beam down, and it happens to be in a region where there's a lot of charge, you can initiate a discharge in that area. Once a solar tap is formed and the ionosphere actually discharges, the electrons and energy will come from all over the ionosphere to that one point, and it will strike the ground in a bolt that is a hundred times greater than any lightning bolt imaginable. And it will not just strike one time. It will strike 30 to 40 times a second until there are not any, any longer electrons or energy to flow from the ionosphere through that tap to ground. But when it strikes the ground, it will vaporize the ground, the water, or whatever it happens to hit. Kind of like three or four Mount St. Helens volcanoes going off each second that that bolt discharges. Admittedly, that's kind of far-fetched, but whenever you're doing experimentation and you're taking risks with large amounts of energy, you must responsibly look at the worst-case scenario. And that could be the worst-case scenario. Well, you know, everyone has to remember that the Earth is a living organism, uh, a lot of living organisms, and things change. To not change is dead. And I believe that we are uh, all electrically connected. And so when you start playing around with electricity, you're going to affect everything. And so I think we need to be very careful uh, as to what we do, especially affecting humans, animals, and other life forms. Well, animals and birds are incredibly sensitive to electromagnetic energies. Is HARP 100% safe? I don't think I would categorize any radio transmitting system as 100% safe. We have made it as safe as we can. Uh, we have followed all the standards that are applicable. There are no standards because we have no intimate knowledge of how Earth and life work together. Many times we've experimented on various different things and that didn't turn out the way we expected it to. It can get as big as what's been determined to be safe in the environmental impact statement. It can't go any bigger than that. Uh, the environmental impact statement was funded by the Air Force and the Navy, the people that are running the program. When you look at the Earth itself, you think about the Earth and how it releases energy naturally. You can look at earthquakes and what we know about them over 30 years that are increasing in depth, frequency, and magnitude. You can look at weather patterns. And what everyone knows, at least in this country and most of the world now, is weather patterns are going through dramatic shifts uh, that are blamed on any number of factors. And you can also look at uh, tidal heights in the North Sea, which have been steadily rising over a 30-year period as it's been charted. All of that indicates releases of energy. And then in the midst of this uh, natural releases of energy, we're going to inject billions of watts of power into the magnetic lines of force. What this will do, they don't really know because they've never been at these power thresholds before. There's no independent scientific committee looking at this outside of the military. There's no physiologist or bioscientist involved in this project from the military looking at those bio effects. We think it's a narrowly focused program in the sense that it's, the bulk of it is military driven. That's what's driving the budgets and that's what's driving the program. The military research is one line of work and I would say the, the medical research is another line of work and for most part these two groups are not talking to one another. There are a number of, of scientists like myself who are concerned about this, who are in fear of what HARP could do to the planet. Not only uh, mind control, but weather changes, uh, possible earth changes, earthquakes, things like that. And we all need to band together. We need to contact each other over the internet. We need to lead a discussion on this. And scientists need to contact their government representatives and tell them what they feel about this. We need to bring in people from all walks of life to study the possible consequences of this technology. We don't know the effects. I don't think we should move blindly forward and just do these experiments. 
We were recently invited to Brussels to speak to a group of um, parliamentarians in an organization called Global International, and we were able to present HARP as an issue to over 60 parliamentarians from 40 countries. And what was important is it really was the first time many of these folks had heard much about this project, but I can tell you that the international interest has been growing, the scientific community is um, starting to wake up to the issue, and what we're seeing is more people willing to go forward and speak out. I'm concerned that the people who understand that all life is in connected aren't the people that are making the decisions about these experiments on our ionosphere. The problem with government and the people right now is that people don't trust the government and they have good cause not to because so many times over the years uh, they've not told them the truth. It's not up to me to determine that it is or is not a valid expenditure of taxpayers' funds. That's not my, it's not my uh, call. And if Congress gives us the funds, evidently they, uh, they believe it's worthwhile. I'm told to do this and we are doing it. Those people who are in government, they tell me a lot of times that they're just following orders. My response is so is Heinrich Himmler. We're about to embark on another arms race. It's totally unnecessary. We're committing billions of dollars to this technology. And the question becomes is, where does it end? I mean, we spent, they figured, uh, $3 trillion on the entire nuclear adventure. And that's, you know, 60% of the current national debt. Are we going to start that cycle again? Is it necessary to do that again? So even though HARP is small today, it really, every major weapons program was small in its infancy. It's just we usually don't find out about them until 50 years later. In this case, we're finding out at the beginning phase, and this is a time for people to take and pay attention and look at this technology and determine, is this really a direction we want to go, and is it really necessary right now? It may not be that the Earth will die, but we will not be able to sustain human life on this planet if we continue to add one element of destabilizing technology after another. If we do not stand up for what we believe in, for the children, we're not doing our job. Perhaps true wisdom lies in knowing our limitations and that even the laws of nature are uncertain. In view of these technologies, we're left to wonder, do these experiments jeopardize our long-term survival? You can find out more yourself. Just go on the internet and do a search for H-A-A-R-P. First, you'll find all the propaganda BS, and then you can dig down into the truth of it. Be that as it may, they're controlling the agricultural areas of the world. So the Ice Age farmer has a special show that I'm going to play that he's talking about alternative ways to use water, different ways to use water, different ways to farm. Uh, And then uh, right after that, uh, because he didn't talk much about it, I'm going to be talking about the drip system, which is the system that I've used and is used in almost every desert community around the world. Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Speaking to you from a very dry California here. So dry, in fact, that, as you know, many farmers in the Central Valley have had their irrigation cut off completely. That's true in Oregon and parts of Idaho as well. Um, Even here in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada, many water districts have cut their allocations to 40 to 60 percent, depending on where you are, which means two to three days out of the week, those pumps aren't running and those canals are dry. So if you depend on a municipal water supply or on some irrigation district to keep your garden or your homestead or your farm operating, it's time to radically rethink that approach right now. It's time to think pretty critically about water as a resource, how to harvest it, how to store it, how to use it best, 
how to reuse it, right? We'll talk about gray water systems. We'll talk about improving your soil's organic matter so that you can maximize infiltration of water during rain and storage of it and making it available to crops. We'll talk about varieties of plants that can produce a maximum of biomass given even a tight water budget. Uh, And we'll talk about some different methods of storing um, water in the land itself, from at-scale earthworks like swales and contour lines, all the way down to smaller things like drip irrigation and the clay pots, right, from, from antiquity. And then even as a bonus, we'll talk about just accepting that you might have an eight or nine month dry season. Well, how do you uh, look at dry farming techniques to produce great yields even given that, even without all of these artificial methods, because that would seem to be a very efficient and effective way of doing it. I think this is one of the most important conversations that we can be having, especially as we see that water is being used as a throttle on global food production, and even on your and my ability to feed our families going forward. So, Let's have that conversation now. And a lot of this isn't just academic. I've been here farming with a very long dry season for almost five years now and uh, working through a lot of these techniques, putting them to the test. So this isn't just some academic conversation we're having. This is I'll also be mixing in what has worked for me. It's a lot of mulch, a lot of the sunken pits instead of raised beds to minimize wind and, and uh, evaporation to sun, right? You'll, you'll hear these same themes around protecting the water, protecting the life in your soil so that your plants can thrive. And that's because that's the name of the game. So thanks for joining me and let's have that conversation. I'm Christian and this is the Ice Age Farmer broadcast. If you live somewhere with lots of rain, maybe you get an afternoon shower every day, boy, that is ideal. And I might even be jealous of you, because that is just so perfect to have sunlight in the morning, a quick rain, and then more growing in the afternoon. You really don't even have to think about this. There are parts of the world where that's the case, and uh, they just look at me like I'm crazy when I ask, you know, where's where's your drip irrigation? How are you doing these things? It's a different story than the one I've been enjoying here. Where that's not the case, or where you may experience some distance between some of those rains, then we need to start talking about how to store that water. It's called rainwater harvesting or uh, water capture. You can see here a very basic and cost-effective example done on just some backyard, small shed, right? Not a huge installation of any sort, not an expensive thing, but it's perfectly effective at storing, it looks like about 100 gallons of water that would be collected off of that little shed there. And then you can use it for whatever animals you have, whatever plants are, are needing to be watered there. Now you can scale that up to even a house size approach. It ceases to be nearly as cost effective at this point, right? I can imagine this would kind of a cistern at size, especially if you try and bury it, would start to be really expensive. Plus, when you look at even how much water you could store in this versus the other approach, storing water in soil, it's a totally different ballgame. But before we get there, I'll just say that, you know, this is perfectly acceptable. I don't know why you would put a warning label on your water, but there are, I know folks who've, who've put in large tanks like this, or even just plumbed a series of IBC tanks such that it fills up all of them at the same time, and then they have effectively this large water battery that they can use during the weeks where they don't get rain. Now again, if you've got an eight-month dry season, 
season. This is helpful, but it's really not going to get you all the way through. It'll be, buy you a few weeks, depending on how much you're irrigating, but, but then you're back to where you began. So this is just one. We're going to chip away at this problem, and gradually we'll start to make a real dent here. There are calculators like this one. There's a bunch of on the web that uh, are pretty helpful. They can be insightful for you to get an idea of, is it worthwhile, right? If I put in a giant cistern or a 55-gallon barrel or anything in between, how quickly is that going to fill up, right? So if we look at this, if I've got a, you know, just a 10 by 12 shed that has a, a service on it and I want to capture the water from it and we only get one inch of rain, that already gives me almost 75 gallons. So it'll fill up that 55-gallon barrel in one inch of rain, just a tiny little bit of rain from a, from a small shed gives you more than enough to fill that barrel. And if you start talking about a real structure, you know, 100 by uh, 120 feet, then now you're looking at 7,000 gallons plus of water in just one inch of a rain. That's why that shed is so productive. That's why it's worthwhile even to do it at that scale, because it doesn't take that much rain, given a decent amount of surface area, add up pretty quickly. So if you have a house that has gutters and some of them are on one side, but you've got a couple of them that drain into one, you can go into Google Earth even and add up the area. You know, just draw a polygon, look at the area in square foot of that section of roof that drains to, your, you know, the largest part of your roof that drains to a single downspout. And then try this out. Give it an inch of rain. See how many gallons of water you'd be able to collect given that inch of rain. And if you have more than an inch of rain in a given storm, you can do the math and see, get a picture of, of how effective that bit of roof would be at capturing water. So that's pretty cool. There are some considerations that I will fly through here. Like I said, I consider this whole conversation today a lightning talk, meaning we're not going to go in depth into any one of these aspects around water. I'm hoping that just by sort of having a, a conversation about some of these approaches, that it gives you some of the keywords and vocabulary and concepts and people and places that it's been tried so that you can then use that as a vector in to do the deep dive, to go find out more about this. But it is worth mentioning here, I think, that if you're going to collect water off of a surface, particularly a surface like a roof, then, and especially after a long dry season, there's a lot of gunk and pollen and dust and nonsense up there that you don't want to collect. And so you can build or buy what are called first flush diverters that will let some of those first few inches of water roll off with all the dirt. And then once that's done, it'll start collecting it. You can also just do it yourself, right? So it rains for the first time, you let it go for a bit, and then you go move the pipe over to your water battery, to your storage, and start collecting the water once it's kind of rinsed off the surface from which you're collecting. I wanted to mention first flush diverters, something you at least want to be aware of when you start collecting water. So now we have it raining. Now we're collecting some of that rain so that we can extend that water, we can pull that into our dry season. But there's another whole aspect of this, and that is that we are already, by virtue of the fact that we exist and take showers and do dishes and laundry, we're already using a great deal of water. And it would be super awesome if we if we could make use of that water more than once, right? If we could take, and in the case of gray water, like those examples that I just named, laundry, dishes, even taking a shower, all of that water is perfectly fine to use in your garden, given some basic 
caveats that I'll mention in a second. We're not talking about, I think, obviously, black water. Stuff that comes out of the toilet, still, we don't, we don't want that. That's going to go still into your septic or whatever. But if it's from those previous sources, and if you are using non-toxic laundry detergents, right, salt-free shampoos, generally, if you're treating your body well when you're in the shower, then all, most of those things are fine to go into your garden to use to water your, your plants. And that's a great way, again, of extending the water we already have before we even start talking about all these other approaches. Gray water systems are often colored purple. That's just the canonical standard color for piping. So if you see a system like with purple tubes running throughout someone's garden, it's a pretty good indicator that that's gray water and you probably don't want to drink it but it's perfectly cool for the garden. One of the coolest and most inspired examples of a gray water system that I've seen is those that are encoded into those initial designs of the Earth ships. And I did a video about this years ago, but we have hundreds of thousands of more people these days. So the way that the Earth ship makes multiple uses of its water is somewhat like this. They, they do harvest water from their roof and collect it into a cistern. That is first used. There's a first use, which is the clean water, right? Potable water, and then you use Use it for cleaning and bathing and washing your dishes. That's the gray water. And at that case, they pipe that into, you can see uh, earth ships typically have this sort of a mini greenhouse in the front here with a bed for growing. That's the second use of water. So you're going to use your clean water here, and then it's going to go into those interior beds for using for water. That all drains down into water that can then be used for bottom of the barrel uses, quite literally, like flushing your toilet. And then at that point, finally, that's black water. Then we can let it go into the septic or wherever else it's going. And in fact, they usually make a point of using some biomass producing trees over the septic tank to even eke a final use out of that water. And that's because a lot of these designs came from parts of New Mexico or Arizona where they just don't have a lot of water to work with. And so getting four uses out of one gallon of water means you don't need the other three gallons that a typical Western wasteful house is using. Okay, so gray water systems, something really cool to, to think about. Again, you want to make sure that you're not using toxic shampoos or so soaps or detergents. And then one other consideration is that if you're pulling up very hard water, if you have hard water full of minerals where you are and you have a water softener on your house, that's using salt to keep those minerals from getting hard on your interior appliances. So anything that's been run through a water softener, you cannot use in a gray water system. It would kill off your plants. Even hard water in the first place is going to have a lot of mineral buildup that will eventually get your plants to the point where there's nutrient lockout and they can't even absorb, even if they're in the best soil, they've, they've got so much salt buildup build up, they won't be able to uptake nutrients. So if you have a water softener, it's off the game over for, for, for gray water, at least until you stop using that softener. You can imagine there may be a point in the future where if all other water supplies stop, if they turn off your municipal water, then maybe you stop using salt in your water softener and you, you switch over to a gray water system. It's important to have options available so that as exterior conditions change, you can adjust your own practices. Anything else on gray water? Yes, one thing on gray water that is a common conception, perhaps misconception, is that this belief that universally gray water is very alkaline. One way, in fact, Jeff Lawton mentions that the way he typically will do it is to plumb the gray water into a compost bin that needs water because that's a typically acidic process anyway, and so that kind of neutralizes part of that. So here from thegraywaterguide.com, the common misconception is that all gray water is alkaline and that acid-loving plants wouldn't do well with it, right? You wouldn't put strawberries on a gray water drip line. But continuing, quote, the pH of your shower water really depends on 
what you put in it. Depends on your shampoo. So if you look into that, if you are again, this is, this is when you when you start really trying to eke out as much as you can from each drip of water, then you start thinking holistically about the way you're using it. What kind of shampoo? What's the pH of my soap? Right, because all that's going to inform the downstream uses of it. Typical bar soap has a pH of seven, so shouldn't be a big deal. And then washing machines are really even in systems where people don't want to go to the trouble of doing a whole house gray water system, or as I mentioned, if you have a water softener and so you can't take that salty water out into a gray water. Some people will plumb, will, re, will redo the plumbing to their washing machine so that it's not part of that softened water, so that it's unprocessed water, and that means that they can then take it out of the washing machine and pipe that into the garden. So there's a few different ways of of working with that I wanted to mention. So now we have water. One other aspect actually just since we're talking about wastewater here is that urine is perfectly fine to use in your garden. That's not part of the black water at all. Now if you're eating a very salty diet you wouldn't want to put that salt on your plants. If you're taking antibiotics you wouldn't want to eliminate any of that onto your garden, right? Again you have to think more holistically about all your things you're putting into your water, all the things you're putting into your body because when we're closing the loop when we're tying our whole system together all of these things are going to affect each other but short of that if you're living a pretty healthy lifestyle and you're not on pharmaceuticals then there's nothing wrong with using urine in your garden you're going to water it down a little bit it's got lots of nitrogen in the form of urea and if it's not that salty there's no reason that you can't use that on your garden so now we have rain we've stored some of it away so that we can extend our, our water into the dry season we're using our water more times than we were before so we can pull it even further forward. Now let's talk about how to keep the water in the soil. What we're seeing here is an example of sunken beds. This is one thing that I have done a lot of. When I first got here, I built some raised beds. They dried out very quickly. I built some straw bale beds. They lost water even more quickly because they're pretty porous. But my sunken beds stay wet. You dig down into the ground and then fill that with very organic matter-rich soil, as we'll talk about in a second, that helps to hold more moisture. It's, it's capable of holding more moisture in anyway. And then by virtue of the fact that it's away from the sunlight, it's away from the air and the wind, it has a reduced evaporation. Right? So you can see we're designing places for this soil and moisture to sit that will keep these things there, that will make the use of the water that we're now applying into our soil. Here's another example of sunken beds. Another example that if you're in permaculture circles at all, you've probably heard is the banana circle, the banana pit, where you dig a pit pretty deep and then you fill it. Again, you fill it with organic matter, tons of compost, and then put a ton of mulch around it and then you plant all around it. And these plants, in this case, banana trees, along the uh, periphery of the circle will sense that there's a ton of moisture. There's a water battery sitting right next to them in this organic matter. And their root systems will grow around uh, to accommodate that and pull the moisture out. So this is one way of pushing water down into the ground, covering it up with mulch so it stays there, and then making sure that it's available to the banana trees. When you take that concept and then blow it out to garden, to, to sunken beds as a whole, I've had a lot of success with that. So this is one example from a guy on permies.com that I modeled some of my garden after where he dug deep these mulch trenches just to put into the ground this organic matter to hold on to water. And then he's placed sunken beds sort of all around these things that the plants that he's planting, the crops will grow their roots down into this big storage of water. And that makes for one happy farmer, even though he doesn't 
doesn't have rain eight months out of the year. It's pretty daunting at first, but again, by combining all these techniques and thinking holistically about it and having some patience and doing some experiments, you can get there. Now, as I intimated earlier, water barrels, you gotta gotta pay for them and they can only store 50 gallons or if you pay a lot for a big cistern, a, a few thousand, it's only scratching the surface compared to how much water you can put into your soil. When we look at some of the doing this at scale, right? Having enough time and resources to look at the lay of the land, literally find the parts of your site that are on level with each other. That's called contour lines. It looks exactly like what you see these lines on a topographical map. And what that allows you to do is sort of build things on contour. In other words, create those mulch trenches we were just seeing so that they're level. You've probably heard the word swales, which are just these trenches that are designed to sink the water down into the soil and and store them there. It's like a mulch pit, but extended out horizontally. There's a couple ways to build those. One of them is on contour, like this here. Wherever those contour lines on your hill are, you'll dig down and build a trench there, a swale there, that will infiltrate the water and then keep it there for all the crops you're trying to build. Now, there are also swales that are off contour that are meant to take water and move it back and forth across the side. You can do a ton of amazing things with water. I'm not going to go too much further into earthworks here because they're kind of time and and money expensive, time and capital expensive, especially if you start talking about renting machines to get that done. But definitely look further into that. Now, there's other things you can do, like building fruit walls. Now, this is another thing that we've talked about before in the context of helping crops and fruit trees grow even when it gets cold. In fact, as we read here, the fruit walls really began to appear around the start of the Little Ice Age period of exception cold in Europe beginning around 1550. And so they would build these walls just were there to hold some of the solar energy from the sun in to keep the wind from blowing it all around and just sort of provide some insulation. It will also be effective at keeping the wind from blowing all of your moisture out, at at providing some shade for some of your crops. So in fact, if you're in a place that has really hot, dry summers, but also brutally cold winters, then offering this kind of sort of uh, insulation, these kinds of little cells to help out, it's like, this is is what they did before greenhouses. It can be a good idea. Now there's other ways to get shade that will help minimize evaporation. Some people just put up shade cloth. They just put up 50, 70% shade cloth you will not get as much solar energy into your plants, but that's an acceptable trade-off if if you're already in a place where they're struggling so much because of excessive heat that they're spending all of their energy transpiring, uh, transpiring the water, then they're not getting to grow anyway. So it may be a situation where you want to take that hit, less solar energy available to them, but less heat, so then they're actually able to make use of that solar energy to grow instead of just spending all of their energy trying to endure through the hot temperatures. Um, it's a trade-off you'll have to experiment with and uh, get some experience where you are. See what works for you. On a smaller scale, this is like a fruit wall Sepp Holzer style, another permaculture practitioner who said you can offer shade and protection against wind, all all the things we're describing on a small scale just by putting some rocks around the things that you plant. And here's an example of that. This is a dry farming technique as well. This is a picture from the Hopi dry farmer Michael Kotutra who uses this large rock here next to the melon plant to keep it moist, right? So that it doesn't dry out completely before it even gets a chance to come out of the ground. So let's talk some more about the soil. I mentioned that if you have more organic matter, your soil is better able to infiltrate water 
which means less of the water is going to run off or pool. If you're completely flat, then if you have dead soil, your water, will it, it doesn't infiltrate very effectively and, and you'll just get standing water and you'll flood out. I remember talking to Gabe Brown who said when his neighbors were all flooded out, his property was able to infiltrate the water. It just absorbed it all down and it was able to hold on to a ton of that because his soil has such a high coefficient of organic matter that it does great. And here from the NRCS is this statistic that was from a study citing that for every 1% increase in the organic matter in your soil, you're able to store an extra 25,000 gallons of water per acre. That's why I sort of shrug my shoulders at the huge expensive cisterns and say, okay, it's actually, it's a better use of my time to improve my soil because I can store tens of thousands of gallons of water there and grow food, right? And get a yield instead of just dump money into the ground and then have to deal with pumping water out of it or something like that. So this is a better answer to me. Although again, you can combine all of these things. If we can take our water from the rain, bring it further into the wet season by virtue of harvesting and storing in a cistern, put it into the soil through some of these systems, recycle it, read the gray water. You see, we're, we're actually starting to make some impact here. We're starting to make a difference. It's not just the infiltration. Like I said, it's actually just holding on to that sort soil organic matter acts like a sponge for water retention it also is able to release it back to the plants when they ask for it so a lot of these presentations have to do with climate change and global warming and we'll just ignore that for now this is yet another one of the reasons about water that i harp so much on these five principles of soil health soil husbandry because when you treat your soil right you're going to naturally have better plants those principles as I always go over them, we'll do it again, are minimize disturbance to the soil. Don't go and till it every season. You kill all the life off. That's really counterproductive. Always keep a living root in the soil at all times. It means cover crops in the off season. It means keeping your soil covered at all times. We talk about having armor on there. I've been saying mulch mulch the heck out of your beds, sunken or raised, whatever they are, wherever it is, make sure that there's no evaporation of the moisture from the soil happening, because that's your water. That's the precious water we're trying to keep here. Not to mention it's just better for the the life of your soil if you keep the sun from hitting the, the soil directly. It'll heat it up and kill off a lot of your microbiome. Maximize biodiversity. They say it here as species diversity of vegetation. Just keeping tons of different crops. Monocropping doesn't scale. It doesn't work. It's not healthy. It's very disease susceptible. And then incorporating animal, absolutely incorporate animals whenever possible. It's a vital part of our nutrient loop. Okay, the reason I go over these soil principles again is because when you follow them, you get and you protect all of that microbiome in your soil, and that means more organic matter, and that means more storage of water. And that's the goal of this conversation. How do we make the most of it? How do we keep it in there? There's a concept called lasagna gardening that I think was popularized by Ruth Stout. And she gives a very... Her reasoning was that she's lazy and she didn't want to till and dig and stuff, so she just kept throwing stuff on her gardens. That's great. I am doing something quite similar because, like I said, I just mulch the heck out of everything. I don't want there to be any chance that moisture is escaping from my beds. So I'll throw on compost and then I'll throw on some leaves from the oak trees and then I'll throw on some grass and then I'll throw on some extra straw or whatever. Just keep throwing stuff on because it's always 
turning into more soil, which is bonus anyway. But again, we're keeping that armor on there at all times. And it's one of the things when I'm walking around my garden that I'm looking for. Are there any holes in my mulch where moisture could be getting out? Because that's not allowed. I got I got a real strict water budget that I have to adhere to here. Hugo culture is another word we should throw in here. And you may have heard of this. It's basically taking a, a log and burying it in one of these sunken beds as you're preparing it, filling it up, and then planting into it. And the idea here is, like we've been reading about organic matter or decomposing logs, in this case, it acts like a sponge. So in the wet season, these logs here, as they're decomposing, are going to soak up a bunch of water, and then throughout the dry season, it's just available to whatever's growing here. As, As it decomposes, more and more of that water is released. As your roots grow down into them, they don't just have that water, they have the, uh, the decomposing, the nutrients from the this log that's decomposing. So you get sort of a two for there. I do not do hugel culture. In fact, I don't even do swales. When I first got here years ago, I was pretty psyched. I had just done my first permaculture design course and I thought, I'm going to do hugels and I'm going to do swales. And, uh, and they just they just laughed at me. Luckily, I talked to other permaculturalists here, and so should you. Find out more about your local environment before you try any technique, because somebody's tried it, and they can tell you whether it works or not. And I heard unambiguously and unanimously that it just wasn't worth doing swales or hoogles because there's no rain. And if there was rain, even if there were just a little bit of rain every three months, then that would push water back into these swales and back into these decomposing logs and it would work. That though Everything I just described would work as advertised. But given a true California-style eight-month dry season, the return is not there. You go to all this effort and then you're, even the logs will dry out. I did try a few of them and sure enough midway through the dry season, you dig down to it, you just find dry logs. It's not decomposing, it's turning into dust. That's sort of what happens here without that rain. So I don't do these things, but I know they work well in other places. So stepping back, we've got some water. We harvested it from our surfaces. We stored it into our water batteries. We used it and we made reuse of it. So we're pulling water further into our dry season and we're stretching it as far as we can and we're making sure it doesn't get out of our soil by sinking it down in. Um, We're following those basic permaculture water principles of spread it, slow it, spread it, and sink it. Spread out the water instead of letting it concentrate and then run off. Sink it down into the soil so it can be held onto and slow it down. Now what do we do with it? Now we've got this water. How do we get it into the plants, to the root systems where it's needed? Well, It's only fair to mention this age-old technique, this ancient technique of clay pots in the soil, the ollas, where you just bury a little clay pot, a little terracotta thing, and you fill it up with water. And as the soil dries out, the water wicks out from the terracotta into the soil. You can do it in raised beds, you can bury it, and that's the whole name of the game. The water that's in this buried terracotta thing, this clay pot, even if it's totally dry on top, will stay in there and will slowly seep out to the plant, which generally, just like the banana circles, will wrap its root system around the clay pot. It's like, oh, there's water over here, and it goes and wraps its roots around this clay pot and uh, sucks the water out of it. And then you just walk around from time to time and fill up your clay pots with water. Or you do sort of a hybrid system where you've got clay pots and you've got drip line going to it. Or you do a, a, this is a sort of example of siphoning off the water into the clay pot from a bigger reservoir. And importantly, one that's visible to you. So you only have to walk outside and notice that it's slow. You don't want to walk around and look inside each little pot. We're trying to minimize our labor too and any chance for for a mistake here. So if it's a highly visible reservoir like this that then uh, 
is siphoned off into any number of clay pots. At least that's just one thing that we have to worry about, and it's visible to us. It's a nice little design consideration there. And I've mentioned in the past, I, I showed you the, the aquaponics wicking bed that I made based on Rob Bob, uh, great channel, Rob Bob's Aquaponics. And he has these designs, uh, has tested all sorts of permutations of different wicking beds, how to run aquaponic water through these beds that just pull it up into them. And so they don't, you never have to water them because as they dry out, they will organically, they're naturally going to suck up a little bit more water, but just what they need. So you can actually combine that with the drip irrigation system just by sort of floating. You can really imagine, I'm including this because I want you to start thinking creatively about what you're doing here. So if you've got an aquaponic system sitting in your backyard and then a garden over here and I have to water this every day, well, maybe not. Maybe we actually just run that return line from your aquaponics close to the garden and then have some drip line that's able to wick into those beds. There's really creative, interesting ways to do this that are actually going to maximize your use of water. And if you're using aquaponic water, you're pulling in some nutrients too. There's a little bit of fertigation there. At scale, you know, I mentioned the irrigation pickets, uh, pivots. At scale, there are starting to be some people who are putting these two things together, like a hybrid pivot using drip irrigation. And I expect we're going to see more of this as this continues, right? As they continue to have water allocations at a fraction of what farmers have been used to by necessity they'll start looking into things that aren't spraying water off onto the highway and into the atmosphere, but are doing pretty strategic placement of water right into the crops where they're needed. So we're storing water, we're pulling it further into the dry season, we're keeping it in our beds, we're holding it in our soil, we're delivering it right to the plants where it's needed. What kind of plants can make the best use of water? How do we maximize our yields given a slim water budget? I've done a lot of experiments and a lot of reading, and I, I can't remember where I read it. I think it was I think it was a Sepp Holzer. I, I can't remember where I came across it. It was a fantastic chart of yields in terms of biomass per water, and sorghum was head and shoulders above everything else. And so I got a bunch of sorghum and planted it. And another cool thing about sorghum is just how prolific it is. You get tons of seeds off of each head, and so that's never going to be a problem for you. You grow sorghum one season, you've got it, as long as you eke it out. So why am I even mentioning sorghum? A lot of studies, including this one, are mentioning that it produces a tremendous amount of biomass. It looks it looks a lot like corn, right? You get the initial, the ton of, of stalks and leaves, and then the grain heads that you can feed to chickens as well. Uh, it's got a ton of uses on my homestead here is another reason I grow it, but particularly in lieu of the water situation. And this study shows that even when we deprive the, the sorghum crop of half of the water that we typically give it. So right here, quote, at 50% of its irrigation, some sorghum still produces 10 tons of biomass per acre growing up to 10 feet tall. Even when you give it half of the water it's supposed to get. And the study itself concludes, quote, this is the best fit for producers with limited irrigation situations, which is almost all of us now, right? Even the dry land with the five inches of moisture, so even more strict watering, still produces two to three tons of biomass per acre. So that's why sorghum is by far at the top of the list in, in, as far as how do we create a ton of biomass? Because remember, I've talked about, I've got to feed my chickens. I've got to have a ton of mulch. I keep saying that word, where we're going to get all that mulch. I need something to grow for the mulch. I need something sweet, right? I need some sorghum syrup. It takes a lot of effort to grind that stuff out and boil it down. But sorghum has a lot of uses. And that's one of the reasons why, and it grows well here. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I've done this, is, is plant a lot of sorghum. Beyond sorghum, you're going to be looking for drought-tolerant varieties of anything, right? And so I'm not going to go through each one here. 
but I've got a series of this table from this book, Growing Food in a Hotter, Drier Land. Again, it's motivated by global warming in their minds, but it's still interesting data that we can put to use here, giving you names of varieties of amaranths and artichokes. Cowpea does really well in the heat and without a lot of, but even more traditional annuals, eggplants, lima beans. I'll be putting up a link to these, or you can just pause the video and take a look as I scroll through here. Some of these are also very heat tolerant, and what you'll be looking for if you're in a, a colder zone is something that is both drought tolerant, but also relatively hardy, which is not impossible to find. In fact, several varieties that I wanted to mention here as we scroll through here, the figs that I like the most are the Chicago hardy figs. They are as drought tolerant as any other fig tree. It's a Mediterranean kind of a plant. But the Chicago hardy is also able to tolerate temperatures even below zero degrees Fahrenheit. So that's an awesome, an awesome tree as we enter the grand solar minimum. I like the persimmons that are Mount Fuji suns. They can also go below zero degrees and are also drought tolerant, right? You can see sort of the, co the combination of attributes that we're looking for here. What's going to make extraordinarily resilient food production is something that can tolerate the heat, something that can tolerate the cold, and something that can tolerate the drought. Basically, when we talk about the symptoms of the grand solar minimum, and we say it's precipitative extremes, but on both sides. It's temperature extremes on both sides. We need plants that are able to deal with these kinds of extremes. The Russian red pomegranate is another one that I'm a fan of that's producing well for me, both cold cold and heat tolerant. And then, you know, mulberries, carobs, loquats, a lot of Mediterranean style trees will do well in drought tolerant. And when I say they're drought tolerant, what I mean is if you can get them through that first season, if you can, you know, give them a drip line for a season or two while they establish, then you're done. Then you have invested that effort up front in getting those trees to establish where you are. You can pull out your drip line and they're good to go through that long dry season because they already have their roots down deep enough that they can pull water up from where it's somewhere down below in the nethers of your soil. Even beyond the varieties that I just enumerated and that were listed in that table, it's worth mentioning seeds learn, plants learn. If you go get some seeds, especially from your neighbor, where they've already been grown in your neighborhood, but even if you buy them online and they come from, you know, Missouri where they've got plenty of water, and then you get them through one season where you are, they're more, they're already adapted better to where you are. And so if you take a couple varieties of corn and you don't give them quite as much water as they want. Right? They, maybe they're looking a little bit sad, but you're all right with that because you know that if you can eke out a crop from this corn with half as much water as it's expecting, then next year, the seeds that you get from this corn are going to only expect half of that water and they'll do much better next year, even on that same amount of water, right? So you are acclimating your own varieties. You're creating your own land races of whatever grows well already for you and things will just continue to, to get better and better. The whole idea here is that we are investing effort into these systems, whether we're talking about swales or your own varieties or establishing a food forest with drought tolerant trees that need a little bit of effort to plant and then irrigate them for a season but then you're done then you pull out the drip line and you just get food for the rest of time longer than I'll be alive these trees will be giving my family fruit and that's awesome in all of these cases we're putting in some initial investment because we know that the goal is to get to that perennial payoff these perennial polycultures that just keep giving us free food even though we have stopped giving them effort that's the goal alright I wanted to close with a reference to Hopi dry farming. One of the first interviews I did on this channel was with a gentleman named Michael Kotutra, 
who is a Hopi dry farmer who talked all about how they are able to grow abundant food. He feeds himself and his family without any irrigation and with an eight-month dry season, right? So they get the monsoon and that seeps down into the earth. And by using both incredibly robust Hopi genetics that they've refined over hundreds of generations and then some basic dry farming techniques, doesn't need water, doesn't need irrigation. The plants are able to take care of that on their own. This is a talk onto itself. And he's created a series of slides that I've made available on iceagefarmer.com. I'll put a link to that as well below. But just as a quick look into that, some of the ways that you get that approach to work are by planting very far apart because these plants are going to grow extensive root systems. They're going to seek and find that water. So you can't plant them too close or they're competing for the for the same water resources. And then by planting them really deep, and I mean, here's an example, corn planted at 18 inches deep. It all depends on how much water is in the soil when you're in the planting season. Beans at four inches deep, squash and melons four inches deep. So this is much deeper than normal, right? But that's because he wants them already be down there building that root system way deeper to go and find that water. And so by the time they actually starting to sprout, they're already starting to reach the water table down there beneath. And again, it's you can't do this with just bantam sweet corn from Missouri. It's not gonna it's not gonna work the same as these really heirloom genetics from a Hopi dry farmer. But again, like we just said with the land races, you can start moving that way. You can take a couple different varieties of corn and make your own hybrid and put it through a series of years getting deeper and drier and start to uh, move the needle in that direction. And over time, as your plants adapt, you will need to water them less and less. So that is less of an immediate payoff, but it's something that we need to be bearing in mind at all times is that our plants, just like we are, are learning and adapting. And if we embrace that and help them to learn and adapt to the conditions we want them, we need them to, then everyone's going to be happier. That's why I wanted to close that. And and just look at this, that what he produces there with no rain and no irrigation is amazing and beautiful and inspiring. And we can do this too. We can all do this. We don't need city water and government handouts to feed our families, no matter where you are. So like I said, this has been a lightning talk. I threw as much in here as I could. I left out a bunch. I'm sure I left out things I didn't even mean to, but I really do hope that this got you thinking in new ways and maybe introduced a new term or two to you that you can now go dig deeper into. Drip irrigation. Let me explain what that is. It's a form of irrigation that saves water by allowing water to drip slowly to the roots of many different plants, either onto the soil surface or directly onto the root zone. Now, this also saves fertilizer because you don't have to fertilize the whole area, just the plants themselves. And it's done through a network of valves, pipes, tubing, and emitters. It's done through narrow tubes that deliver water directly to the plant. Usually, it's chosen, instead of surface irrigation, to minimize use of water, use of fertilizer, and minimize evaporation. That's what drip irrigation is. Just to make it real simple, you know, you go out someplace and you look at the plants all around this area, That's and there's a pla- there's tube. There's like a black plastic tube, like a quarter-inch tube that runs from plant to plant. And you go, what, that? what is that for? So... I'll tell you where I saw the very first drip irrigation system. I was 12 years old, 13 years old. My dad had left when I was 8, and then after a few years, he got guilty. He felt guilty, so he'd take the take us kids one weekend a month. So one weekend, he picks us up, and he's got his Volvo station wagon, and there's this trailer hooked to the back of it. It's got walls about a foot high, and in the back of the trailer is four shovels. 
So he goes, uh, we're going to dinner. So we go about two and a half, three hours north, and we go into this restaurant, and we're, we're having a nice dinner, and I think if I remember, it was corn dogs and, and uh, french fries. As soon as it got dark, I mean, Dad was kind of screwing around, saying, oh, you, you guys want another milkshake? Till it got dark. And then he goes, all right, it's dark, let's go. So we got in the car, and we drove over to a place called Agate Beach. Agate Beach. I don't know anything about it now. I, it, I don't know if it still exists, but it's agates. It's the only beach I've ever heard about in the world that is totally made up, not sand, but agates. Most of them about the size of the, about the your, your little fingernail. And uh, we pulled up onto the beach, and Dad goes, start shoveling. We filled up his trailer in the dark. And I'm like, what's going on, Dad? He goes, this worked. So we filled up his trailer, and then we, we hauled butt home. And then uh, he just backed it into his garage, and then we did the rest of our weekend. So next month, when we went to see him, he hated gardening. He hated watering. So he had... His front yard was all agates, and there was like half a dozen different types of cactus out there. And he had this plastic tube that went under the agates to each one of these cactus plants. That was his watering. That was a drip watering system. The drip irrigation is very simple. It's basically a, a tube that goes from your spigot and goes directly to a plant or a spot in the ground, uh, an area. Uh, there's a, what's called an emitter, and there's all kinds of different ones. There's some that, that just drips, and there's some that literally will go... And spray out. There's some that ha- that do a mist. There's all kinds of different ones of these emitters. This could be a very articulate system, or it could be a, a very simple system that you could literally pick up and take with you when you leave. But there are parts to it. Basics. All right, this is the basics. I'm going to have all these links up. Now let's. All right, here's the basics to a drip system. You have pretend it's a hose. Okay. Now, well, let me tell you this. This is what I did in Ceres, California. We had I don't remember four or six raised beds. This was all concrete in the backyard. There's really nice people that own this house we were renting, but it was all concrete. So I got permission to put in some raised beds, and they're, they were two feet high. There was a lot of dirt put in there, and we planted all kinds of vegetables and stuff, and I had a drip irrigation system. And basically it was this. You have a valve, right? This is your bib in the backyard. And then I put a backflow preventer, so if the water comes out, but it doesn't go back in. And then there was a pressure regulator after that. Now, a normal house pressure is somewhere around 60, 45 to 60 pounds. Uh, pounds per square inch. You want to stabilize that because sometimes you know water pressure increases, drops down. You want to st- and you're only going to be using like this little quarter inch tube. So you don't want too much pressure in there. So you get a pressure regulator, drop it down about to about 40 40 psi. And then you're going to want to filter. Get this inline filter and you can basically it's a filter that you can clean out because you don't want any chunks going through this and it'll clog the whole thing up and screw everything up. And then you have an adapter that screws onto that that drops the dimension of the drip tubing down. And then you have about 18 inches between each emitter. So we had this line that ran down. It, it was so small and thin. Oh, I put one other thing on there. I put a timer. Ran on a 9-volt battery. So I turned the watering on about midnight and then turned it off about 3 a.m. The line ran through a crack in the concrete up to the first box. Let's say, and I don't remember what it was exactly. I think it was carrots. We were growing carrots and broccoli and a few other things in here and radishes. The tubing ran along the first row. And the emitters, literally you poke a hole in this tubing and you shove an emitter in there. And the emitter can be 
any kind it's basically a miniature sprinkler you go into Home Depot or Lowe's you will see what I'm talking about there's so many different ones that you can get what I did was it's a little it was a little pop up so when the water pressure came on it popped up and you've seen like at a golf course these pop up watering things pops up and there's a wide spray of water coming out well these little pop ups would pop up when I say little they're, they're the size of the tip of your little finger maybe an inch tall they pop up and the water can be adjusted to be a, a 360 degree circle or just half a circle so it's just a little screwdriver just adjust this stuff so I was having it spray the carrots and then we go to another area and I a couple feet down the road the row I would have another little emitter pop up so I have these little emitters pop up and they spray or drip on the various different plants and I had even fruit trees in the backyard that I that I was growing and I had part of this system go to the fruit tree and it ran a, a circle around the fruit tree its base and I had four drip emitters from that and then it went to the next tree I had four drip emitters from that and that's basically what it was so when I was watering my garden everything was dry except the exact plants and my u- my water use didn't increase from the household except maybe a couple dollars a month which the owners of the house my my landlord thought it was astounding I said how do you, how are you keeping this stuff alive with only a little bit of water I, I showed him the whole trick and he was just astounded I told him I'd leave it there when I left and I did we left the whole system there this whole system cost me a hundred bucks maybe a little bit less people can't tell you're watering your plants this is big in the desert because then you don't have to worry about evaporation they have these lines going just various plants I have a friend who is a he works he's not a principal he's like uh, he's something like a dean or something in a in a school in Nevada in the desert, and they don't have grass out front. It's hard packed dirt, but they have these bushes, and I forgot what they're called. It's not man's need. It's some other bushes that he have every four or five feet that grows out front, and it's hard packed dirt. And he gets no weeds because weeds aren't going to grow there because there's no watering the dirt. <clears throat> he has the drip system going to each one of those plants, and it comes on twice a day. You look at it in function, and you go, how how can that do any good it's just barely dribbling out of there well you leave it on for two or three hours that's what you do and you can incorporate it into any other system that you want like I recall one it was a the guy actually didn't use the a drip system see a normal drip system is, is hard plastic hard black plastic tubing and you you poke a hole wherever you want the sprinkler this is the thing you say I think I want a sprinkler right here poke a hole and there's your sprinkler and you can shove in that hole any sprinkler you want and if you say after a while, you know, I don't want a sprinkler there anymore, they sell these rubber plugs you plug in that hole. Uh, he was using a normal hose, and he was do- he was using a normal hose and duct tape, but it was cool. It was working. Yeah, you got to do what you got to do. So drip irrigation, it can be used anywhere. You don't need to water everything. You have to use it with respect. You've got to know what you're doing. You lay out plot. You say, this is what I want to have. I want to have this, this, this. I want to water these things. So I'll need this kind of emitters. These are or sprinklers, if you want to call them that. And I'll need the end cap. That's the given. You got to. There, there's certain parts that you have to have, and there's certain parts that would be nice to have. So the things that you the things that you have to have are basically uh, connectors, stuff to connect. The hose to the uh, valve, the, the faucet in your backyard. I mean, you could do away with the backflow preventer, the pressure regulator, the filter, if you wanted to. Problem is, those things are all there, uh, so you're thinking ahead of a problem that could occur. And I don't know about you, but here in North Idaho, we get weird crap in the water, not just hard minerals, but the filter the, the filter that you, you should put on the inline, uh, you can uh, just open it up, turn the water on, it'll flushes it all out. But you can do with less, if you wanted to, if you had to. But the system that I explained to you, the drip system, so 
you can see what it is. You can go into Home Depot or Lowe's. I go into Home Depot and I look at their drip system and it's it's a whole wall. And people don't even know about it. It's astounding. But governments know about it and schools use it. It saves money. That you don't have to worry about uh, wasting your water because you do. You you waste your water. My brother has uh, has a little farm in California and what they do is to irrigate. They literally go out and they turn this valve on and it floods the field. Puts about a foot of water on dirt and then he turns it off and it soaks in and he does that once every I think three or four days which is utterly stupid because you can run a version of a drip system and there's in fact there's people in central California that use a, a version of a drip system to grow their strawberries they're literally steel pipe that runs the full length of the field and it has little emitters or sprinklers little tiny ones now these are not sprinklers they're they're like a drip thing and they're drilled into this the systems it runs the length there's like a hundred if there's a hundred rows there's a hundred pipes and they have them on a timer. They turn them on, and the plants themselves are getting the water. Very seldom do you see any water running down the little hill, that you know, the, the raised areas where the strawberries are, and they have these gullies between them, these rows. Very seldom do you see any water running down there. And some of these fields have been in in, uh, in existence for 75 years, and this is the way they've always done it. So it's just something to think about. You know, you, you can grow anything you want, anywhere you want, and you can use a drip watering system. Those of you who grow your own food or are thinking of growing, your own food that's the purpose of this uh, ice age farmer speak and there's a little bit that i did on drip uh irrigation it's not really irrigation drip watering but i would uh, greatly advise you to pay attention to some of this stuff now i'm going to play because today is the uh, eighth anniversary of the death of my mother wilma wilson i have a special show that i do every year at this time or as close to this time as i can she was a unique creature, and you'll find that out by listening to this show. But I'm going to be signing off now. It is August the 4th, 2013, and I'm Kurt Wilson, the owner of Survival Enterprises, and I am the armchair survivalist. I wanted to let you know what was going on. In July, after the first show, which is on Internet security, I know, what a laugh, a day or two later, something told me to call the engineer, Todd, and say, cancel the show for the rest of the month. Now, any of you who've listened to my show, you know I don't do that. Something said, you need to have the rest of the month open. So I told Todd to play The Way to Happiness, parts one, two, and three. It's not as if we all can't learn from that, so he set it up. Two days after that, I get a phone call from my brother in California. I know he's an idiot. He's still living there. And he says, uh, Mom's had a stroke, and she's in the hospital. So we packed up lock, stock, and barrel, and my wife Angie and my son Eric and I headed south. When we got to where we were going, I went into the hospital in the ICU, and my mother had had a massive brainstem stroke, which basically shut off the ability of the brain to control the body, period. Nothing. She could could control anything. The only thing keeping her alive was the uh, oxygen. They had, they had her hooked up to machinery. She was uh, 80 years old, 81, not sure which. She was there. Brain scan showed that she was there. Brain was working fine. It had no control whatsoever on the body, and the body was dying. The machinery could not keep it going. Anyway, I want to talk about my mom, Wilma Wilson. Wilma Mary Wilson. My family is not just a family. We're not just some people. Our lineage is traced back to Philip de Renald. He was a Knight Templar, or a thousand years ago. We're descendants of the original Reynolds clan, with Clan McInturf, Clan McDonald, Kitching, Bruner, and the Cherokee Nation thrown in. Our family history goes back well over a thousand years and is trackable. We've had presidents, highwaymen, thieves, generals, soldiers, healers, shaman, princes, princesses. We've had books written about members of our family, both good and bad. <laughs> 
some of our family is still hated in certain parts of the world, and some still have uh, warrants out for their arrest in certain parts of the world. Some have statues standing about them in certain parts of the world. The thing about our family is that we always craved the adventure. Many of you know most of your friends are just an 8 to 5. You know, they just go through life, do their 8 to 5 thing, have a wife, 2.1 children, couple cars, and they're happy with that. We've never been that way. We've always craved the adventure. So is my mother. My mother's always craved an adventure. And when she's not in an adventure, she gets weak and tired and crabby. <laughs> I told you that we showed up in Modesto, California, and we went and saw my mother, and she had had a massive stroke. It had burned her brain stem. She was still there, and there's some of you out there, many of you, who don't understand when I use the term she. I know you've heard me speak of the body, the mind, the spirit. Our family is not like normal families. We don't believe you have a soul like a little puppy. We believe you are a soul. So when I say she was still there, I mean she was still there in her head. And she was angry and upset because this was not part of the plan. She didn't plan on having her body die on her. So my brother and my sister and I, after talking with all the rest of the clan, we said our goodbyes to mom. And she was upset that she would not be remembered. So I, <laughs> there's, there's no option. You cannot not remember my mother. So I promised her that I would take it upon myself to categorize, log, and scan and copy every photograph that we have available to us and they go back to 1850 40 something i'm not sure i haven't gone through the whole thing yet but i've been astounded at some of the history that i've seen in these boxes of pictures and photographs that i brought home so with my sister my brother and my wife angie we held my mom and had them pull out the uh, oxygen tube it took her about six minutes for the body to die and then she left at 7:51 p.m july 18th she was met by some people who loved her and would show her the way. But I want to talk a little bit about my mom. She wasn't just some old 80-year-old woman who just kicked the can. My brother apparently couldn't get away from her, so he spent most of his life living with her or vice versa. She spent most of her life living with him and his wife and, and his daughter, Mary. And my, some years back, my brother became a representative for the NRA. Now, what he does is he works with the friends of the NRA putting on dinners and auctions all throughout California and Nevada. Like me, he's not good at what he does. He's the best in the world at what he does. When I was a gunsmith, I wasn't good. I was the best in the world at what I did, and he is the best at what he does. And Nana, Wilma, everyone called her Nana. Nana worked with him at all of the dinners and all of the auctions, and everyone got to know her. And she could take control of an area that was confused and step in, and you did not want to argue with her. My mom was not an, a normal woman. I recall when we were kids, we didn't have welfare. Once a month, the government would hand out excess cheese and peanut butter, and you know they would. The, our government used to care about the citizens. Well, that went away in the 60s and 70s, but we would drive to Oakland, California, is where they had the big warehouse there. So there's me, my sister, and my mom, and we would have to drive through some real seedy places in, in Oakland. And I remember one day, some guy, we're doing driving real slow across these railroad tracks, and one day some, some guy comes running up to the side of the car and grabs the door with his left hand because your windows roll down, and then he's, she's, he's trying to unlock it, open the door with the other. My mom calmly pulled the knife out of her boot and cut his finger off, just whacked it right off. And then she felt bad about it, so she threw the piece out at him. That was my mom. 
I, I came home from school one day. I think I was six years old, eight years old. And here was my dad packing his car. And he said, nice knowing you. Gives me his service medals and off he drives. So she had to raise three children on her own. Well, a year or so later, she hooks up with some other guy who abused her. And she didn't take that too well. And one day, he comes home drunk from a bar, opens the front door, and there she is standing with a loaded M1 carbine with a 30-round mag in it, pointing it at his face, telling him to get the hell out of here. And we had already put all his personal belongings on the front lawn. That was my mom. I'll tell you a little bit of history about my mom. You know what a sweater girl was? The pinup girls from the 40s and 50s used to wear these bras, like Lady Gaga, uh, these bras that are like a cone that come out almost to a point. And then they would wear a beautiful cashmere sweater over that. That was a sweater girl. My mom did that in high school. I still don't have all the information. I am still finding out things. I didn't know. I'd, I'd only heard rumor that our clan came from a Knight Templar. I just found the proof this morning. So there's a lot of things that, that I don't know that I'm finding. She went to school at Humboldt High, and she was good friends with a guy there named nicknamed Tiny, who started the Hells Angels of Humboldt County. She would go on rides with them now and then. And by the way, she stayed friends with him, unbeknownst to me, until the day he died and was buried at the Catholic Cemetery behind my our house in uh, Sacramento, California. And that was in the middle 60s, I think it was, late, late 60s. At 18, Wilma married Jack and became Wilma Wilson. Now, Dad was in the Navy, and uh, we were in Eureka at the time as a little kid. And then my sister was born, and we moved to base housing in San Diego. And an interesting thing happened to me in San Diego. This is like the 50s. And if you can imagine how everybody was dressed and what everybody did, nobody ever locked their doors, and it, everyone felt safe in base housing. And it wasn't base housing like you have. These were like single-level concrete buildings that would house four apartments or, ha or houses. One night, I was put to bed, and this is when I was shown my totem. Totem is, the, is your spirit animal that guides you. I was put to bed. They close the door. It's pitch black in my room. I hear something rustling in the corner. And I mean pitch black. I, I, I see nothing. I hear something rustling. And I'm seeing two golden eyes about two and a half feet off the ground. And they start coming towards me in a walking manner. And I'm looking at this. Now I'm not asleep. I haven't even gone to sleep. I'm looking. I was like, what the heck is that? I feel cold. I'm so f afraid. And then if you can imagine, those of you who have a dog or a cat, imagine it getting up onto your bed. You feel the weight of, of a body pressing down on the blankets and laying across my legs. At that point, I screamed. And all the men, uh, they, they were there was 20 men, must have been out front, come running into my room. There was nothing there. But you could see where something had laid on the foot of my bed and I told them what had happened and most of them like just foo-fooded and like I was some wacko nut everyone laughed and then mom sat in there and she goes what did you see I said I didn't see anything but it had eyes like a tiger she said you'll remember that to this day my totem is still the tiger now we moved from there back to Eureka into a, a two-bedroom apartment and we had like eight people living in there and I have some stories that I could tell you about my uncle Irwin coming home from the Navy with uh, sunburned and various parts of his body and uh, his new wife and him were in the in one of the rooms, and all I heard from him was, ow, 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 all night long. I never did understand that until years later. From there, we moved to a log cabin on a reservation, and that's when I was taught how to shoot a bow. It, but it wasn't a normal bow. It was a six-foot long bow, and it had come from our family and been brought over from England. 
I don't remember a lot about that. See, I'm telling you all of this stuff from what I remember. And it was always a contentious time with mom and dad because dad wanted to be the man and so did mom. And she didn't like, she did not like anyone telling her what to do. She just wanted to do what she wanted to do whenever she wanted to do it, not answer to anyone. And dad didn't like that. After a few years, it got kind of problematic with them. Well, dad got out of the Navy. And by the way, when dad was in the Navy, he met this guy named Bing Crosby. Bing Cro apparently, Bing Crosby had been filming one of his Road 2 movies, like the Road to Rio, Road to Winter Valley. And my dad assisted him in some manner to the point where it endeared my father to Bing for the rest of his life. Well, dad heard, he got out of the Navy and heard that there was work in San Francisco. They were building something called Candlestick Park. So, lock, stock, and barrel off the reservation, we moved to a trailer in a trailer park right up the hill from Highway 101, which was a two-lane road. I remember walking across it to go to Candlestick Park to hang around with my dad while he worked building it. I was there when they built Candlestick Park. Uh, we lived there until almost everybody in the area got sick from some strange disease, uh, which, which we didn't find out what it was till 30 years later when we found out it was the, our government testing the spread of pathogen and seeing how many people they can sicken in a, in a metropolitan area. It was something they ended up calling the Hong Kong flu, claiming that it came from some illegal Hong Kong people, you know, somebody from Hong Kong. It wasn't. Well, after the stick got built, Mom said, look, we can make money doing foster care. So we moved into this three-story house in Sharps Park, and my mom started doing foster care. We'd, we'd have a dozen kids at one time. I remember that. And I remember a steel barrel that I would get into and go to the top of the little of the hill in our backyard and roll down. And I remember that as a long roll. And you know something? I found a picture of that. I don't think my backyard was more than 20 feet long or wide. I just found that picture this morning. Good God, I was short. <laughs> but that's what we did up there. And then all of a sudden we didn't. And then all of a sudden we were poor, had nothing. We didn't have beds. We, we slept on sleeping bags on the floor. And we moved to San Mateo. And I woke up one night with a rat asleep on my chest. And I was afraid to move. And at that moment, Dad came home. It was about 2 in the morning. He saw the rat and he threw something. The rat took off and ran underneath the sink. He grabbed his 1911 45, caught the rat in a bucket, took it outside, dumped it in the garbage can, and squeezed off eight rounds into a garbage can at 2 in the morning. Police showed up a few minutes later. And Dad goes, I shot a damn rat. And I go, oh, okay. And left. I'd try that today. Bad thing was, about two days later, my sister and I came down with the bubonic plague. See, that's what a disease was a disease, not a political statement. They cordoned off the city block, wouldn't let anybody come and go, and my mother had to walk my sister and I down to the corner twice a day so we can get antibiotic shots. Well, obviously we lived. And then Dad got a job at United Airlines. So him and a couple dozen guys that had been his shipmates aboard ship when he was in the Korean War bought some property at the south end of Lawrence Station Expressway in an area now known as Sunnyvale. Before then, it was nothing more than a tomato farm. And for the exorbitant fee of $4,500. He bought the property and the materials to build a three-bedroom, one-bath house with an attached one-car garage, which we lived in for about a dozen years. During that time, remember I told you about Bing Crosby, and I've talked to you about things that have how I met John Wayne at, at one of Bing Crosby's uh, parties and how Bing's daughter taught me how to ride. Well, I found out it wasn't Bing Crosby's daughter that taught me how to ride. It seems Bing's first wife died on a, a Christmas. We were there at a Christmas party, and this really nice lady, I thought it was his daughter. I mean, you know, I'm a kid. She takes me out and teaches me how to ride the thoroughbreds. Her name was Olive Catherine Grandstaff. She was 30 years younger than Bing was. She ended up marrying him, and she was known as Catherine Crosby. Yeah, I had that cleared up by looking through this box of stuff. 
anyway, so we lived there for a while, and then one day I come home from school, and there's my dad packing up his Volvo station wagon with a bunch of stuff, and he said, nice knowing you. I mean, literally, that's what he said, and gave me his war medals, and he drove off. Oh, they'd have, they'd had fights. Uh, I remember one time mom threw an iron at his head, and he ducked at the last minute, and it embedded itself in the wall of the house. Uh, these weren't nice fights. It was more like mom was fighting, and dad was totally befuddled of what the hell was going on. Mom literally was too strong to have a man. She was raised that way. She had to stand on her own and defend and protect that which she loved her whole life by herself. So after dad left, she got three jobs. Three jobs. Just so she could pay the house and feed three kids and two dogs, parakeet, and a couple goldfish. So she had to have three jobs. And what she did was, first job was like 6 in the morning. I think it was 6 to 9, and she did janitorial someplace. And then she went to work for Lenkirk Electric, which was a um, part of the military-industrial complex in the Bay Area. They built circuit boards for missiles, and this is in the early 60s. Now, my mom smoked. In fact, my mom smoked since I was in her belly when she was pregnant with me. You're going to love this. When I was a kid, mom would give me 50 cents to walk down the street to the supermarket, buy a loaf of bread, quarter milk, and a pack of cigarettes. And I'd walk in there and they'd go, oh, you're Wilma's kid. Yep, this is what she wants. And they'd give me a pack of cigarettes, carton of milk, loaf of bread, and I'd walk home with it. That was then. This is now. You couldn't smoke at Lenkert's because they had to have a clean room. I mean, they, they didn't care about the smoke. They just didn't want you dropping ash into, into the uh, circuitry. I have this Aunt Thelma, or I did. She was very famous. She rode in the stagecoach, very last stagecoach that was ever robbed. Okay, this is Aunt Thelma. She could drink me under the table. Anyway, Aunt Thelma taught my mom the secret to never dropping ash from a cigarette. Here's the secret. Try it sometime. Mom would take a very thin wire and put it down the center of the cigarette into the filter. That's it. Your ash will never fall. Try it sometime. So mom would have this cigarette dangling from her lips, and you swear to God, any second that ash is going to fall, and you're just like, you're holding an ashtray, just reaching over like, uh, I mean, any second, and it was the strangest thing to watch her. But they said, well, if it works, it works. So she started making money selling wire to all the other girls on the assembly line. (laughs) She spent an hour every night clipping wire to link the cigarettes. Then at night, she worked as a waitress at the bowling alley. I won't say my mom was a fox, but she had a good figure. She wasn't like, oh, always had dates and stuff, because she didn't take crap from anyone, so obviously <laughs> the men didn't want any part of her. Well, she it ended up being so so much work for her that she had to hire a nanny. She hired a Scottish nanny. And I didn't know this till years later that she was part of our clan. But she hired this woman, and not only did this woman take care of us kids, but she also was a piano instructor. Now, my grandpa was a sheriff of Placerville for a few years, and the whorehouse on the end of town... They're supposed to pay their taxes every year, and if they don't pay their taxes, they got to do something. And Grandpa wasn't the kind that would just throw them out in the cold, so to speak, so he would take trades. Now, not, not sex. One year, he traded for a piano. It had been made in 1897. It was an upright. That's what we had in our front room when I was a kid, this 1897 New Yorker upright piano. And that's what I learned how to play piano on. So this lady taught us, not only did she take care of us as a nanny would, but she also taught us how to play the piano, all three of us kids. My brother was the youngest. He came around last. After he was born, Dad didn't last another year, and he took off. It wasn't anything my brother did. My brother wasn't problematic. In fact, he was easy to take care of. All we did was tie him in his bed when my sister and I wanted to go somewhere. No, that's not a joke. (laughs) I don't remember that. He says he swears we did it. We were so poor that there were 
My mom wasn't making $10 an hour. She was making 65 cents, 85 cents an hour. And she had to, to, to pay the loan off on the house. And she had to pay for our health, our doctors, our dentists. She had to pay... She had to buy a car. Grandpa loaned her $150 to buy a 1951 Ford four-door coupe, which then she had to have the lady next door help her put seat covers on the car. My mom had never done this. She'd never put seat covers on anything, but the seats were torn to hell. That's why she got this car so cheap. See, the car only had 20,000 miles on it. It purred like a kitten, but somebody had gotten in and torn up the seats. That's why she bought it. She got it so cheap. It had new tires on it. I mean, it was beautiful, except for the seats. So my mom figured out how to take off this, unbolt the seats, and they were bench seats, front and rear, how to unbolt them, how to take them out. She went to Sears. Sears was the go-to store, and they had seat covers. There were factory seat covers. They weren't this cheap crap you get for 19.95 at Walmart. I mean, you put them on with hog rings. My mom went and got that and took her two days, and she had new seat covers on the car, and they were just beautiful. And I remember my, my sister and I used to play in the trunk of that car. And I think I told you the story of the, what my mom had shoved way up in the back of that trunk. It was a duffel bag, guns and ammo and food and clothes, and that was her bug-out bag. My mom was a little different. That's why I'm different. And if I wanted anything, my mom didn't have the money to give me a quarter, even a quarter. She could, she had no money for that. She barely had all her funds allocated to us surviving. The one thing she would do is every Friday night, she would buy a pizza that you cook at home, a pint of cottage cheese. I have no clue how the hell she figured out those two together. And they used to have a pack of comic books for 50 cents. She would get go those three things and we would, that would be our Friday night. I think the whole expense was like $2 for everything. I decided to help out. Once in a while, some friends of my mom's, we would go to, to the beach, Santa Cruz. And I started collecting seashells. Little tiny ones. Not these big, no, not big scallops or anything like that. I mean, little tiny, tiny ones. Size of an eraser. I had thousands of them. So I'd take them home, and my uncle flattened the tip of a little tiny nail, a finishing nail, and I'd use that as a drill, and I would drill holes in these seashells. And my grandmother had thousands and thousands of the hoop earrings that, that, you know, the pierced ear things. She would give me them, and I would make earrings. And I went door to door selling pairs of earrings for 25 cents. That helped. I mean, if I wanted, once a year, mom would take us to Sears and use grandpa's credit card and buy our school clothes. That's where, when Levi's were made in America and the 501s cost five bucks a piece. And that's, I'd get three pair of those every year. And then the next year, my brother would get those and I'd get new ones. And then after a while, my, my sister, we were taught how to sew, by the way, by my mother. We couldn't afford a lot of clothes. So my mother taught me how to sew on a treadle sewing machine, taught my sister how to sew. And once a year, she'd take all of the old Levi's, take the hems out, and make a dress for my sister. So we would repurpose clothing. We didn't throw anything away. I mean, literally, when the garbage man come to pick the garbage up every, what was it, Wednesday or Saturday morning, it would be like two bags in a small garbage can out on a curb. And he's like, what do you do with all your garbage? And my mom would tell him, we don't have garbage. All the food leftovers. First off, we don't have food leftovers. I mean, period. We didn't have food leftovers. There was almost nothing. There was nothing to throw out. Everything we used, we we either recycled or we didn't have garbage. You can tell how you could tell a real poor person by how much garbage they throw out. So after a while, mom got tired of it. My aunt lived in Sacramento and said, Wilma, why don't you move up here? We get a house for you. Only cost you a hundred a month. We can get you a job and all of this good stuff. So my mom sold the house for twelve thousand five hundred dollars. And I could tell you something. That house was at 1221 Oak Creek Way. The last time it sold was half a million dollars. Can you believe that? From 4500 
twelve five, and I've gone back four or five times to that house, and each time it's you know the owner said, yeah, I sold it for one hundred and twenty thousand, or I bought it for two fifty. It sold for five over five hundred thousand dollars. So moved to Sacramento. I forgot where mom got a job at, but she got a she got a job, and it was better than what we had before. See, it used to be in our front room we had a couch and an old Hoffman television that cost my mom 10 bucks. I mean, that was it. Well, I remember when we moved here or to Sacramento, we ended up getting an easy chair. Oh, my Lord. We're uptown now. And we got an actual chrome-plated vinyl dinette set. You've seen them. They're all in, from the 50s and 60s and 70s. And we each had our own bed. Holy cow. Can you believe that? My brother had his bed. I had my bed. My sister had her bed. Didn't have a garage. We had a carport. But that was Sacramento. And we did pretty good there. There's a lot of stories that I could tell. But my mom, Wilma Mary Wilson, was not a normal woman. She was raised by a mountain man and survivors of the Depression. She was taught that, no, I'm sorry, honey, there is no option. You can't stumble and fall. You have to stand on your own two feet, and you have to be confident about it. And that's gone nowadays. It's gone. Nowadays, people put their hand out. Now, granted, my mom put her hand out, too. There were times when her life went really bad physically, and she had to, she had to go on disability and food stamps. And if my brother hadn't have been there, my brother stayed with her to, to make sure that everything went as well as possible. Now, don't get me wrong. We still had fun. Hell, we counted ourselves lucky. We really did. But she learned that you can't suck the government's tit and expect to have any kind of soul left. So she went back to school. She went back to college, and in 1984, at the age of 52, she graduated with a four-year degree in early childhood development, and she started the Head Start in California. Now, after a few years, she got fed up with it and realized it was pure crap in politics. I mean, the kids would come there from illegal immigrants, and she, they would bathe them and cut their hair and take the lice off of them and feed them during the week. On the weekend, they'd go home. Then they'd come back the next week, and they'd be just as bad, and it was a government game, so she got tired of it, but here she is. She raised three kids, and she goes back to college now i was gone most of the time she raised me very strict my brother not so strict in fact when i come home from uh one deployment overseas i'm sitting at the dinner table and we're talking and mom says something and my brother mouthed off to her i backhanded him so hard if there wasn't a wall behind him he would have flown a 10 feet instead i just knocked him ass over tea kettle and i told him don't you ever talk to our mother like that again i have never i do not allow it i don't talk with disrespect to my elders ever that's gone mom had a wake she said she didn't want to waste time getting buried she wanted to be cremated so we had a wake we only had two days sent the email out it was on sunday i don't remember bob's home of beef or something like that that's my mom's favorite place whenever you showed up there on your birthday they give you a hat a cowboy hat and she told my brother last year you make damn sure they have a pink hat for me this year i'm tired of those blue ones they had a pink hat this year so we showed we sh we showed up there, and I had like seven bottles of wine. My brother, who doesn't drink, had six. We had a good time. I want to read you something that was read at my grandfather's funeral and read at his funeral, his father's funeral, and his grandfather's funeral, and every funeral in the clan as far back as we know. I'm going to try and read it to you, okay? Now, first off, if I get cut off, Mom had two songs she wanted played at the wake. Those two songs or my outgoing music. This is my mother's choice, all right? Here is an old, old Celtic prayer. Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there. I do not sleep. I'm a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glints on the snow. I'm the sunlight that ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn's rain. When you awaken in the morning's hush, I am the swift, uplifting rush of quiet birds in circled flight. I'm the soft star that shines at night. Do not stand at my grave and cry. I am not there. I I did not die. 
That's been traced back 1,200 years that we know of. And here's another prayer, if I can get to it. Wilma, Mary, Wilson, we remember you. At the rising of the sun and at its going down, we remember you. At the blowing of the wind and the chill of winter, we remember you. At the opening of the buds and in the rebirth of spring, we remember you. At the blueness of the skies and in the warmth of summer, we remember you. At the beginning of the year and when it ends, we remember you. When we are weary and in need of strength, we remember you. When we are lost and sick at heart, we remember you. When we have joy we crave to share, we remember you. When we have decisions that are difficult to make, we remember you. When we have achievements that are based on yours, we remember you. As long as we live, you too will live, for you are now a part of us as we remember you. Goodbye, Mom. I'll see you next time.
<laughs> Come on in. Rock a while. Grandma got run over by a reindeer Walking home from our house Christmas Eve You can say there's no such thing as Santa But as for me and Grandpa, we believe She'd been drinking too much eggnog And we begged her not to go But she forgot her medication and she staggered through the door out in the snow When we found her Christmas morning At the scene of the attack She had hoof prints on her forehead And incriminating claws marks on her back Grandma got run over by a reindeer Walking home from our house Christmas Eve you can say there's no such thing as Santa But as for me and Grandpa, we believe Now we're all so proud of Grandpa He's been taking this so well See him in there watching football Drinking beer and playing cards with Cousin Mel It's not Christmas without Grandpa Open up her gifts or send them back. Grandma got run over by a reindeer walking home from our house Christmas Eve. You can say there's no such thing as Santa. As for me and Grandpa, we believe. Now the goose is on the table and the pudding made of fig. And the blue and silver candle That would just have matched the hair in Grandma's wig I warned all my friends and neighbors Better watch out for yourselves They should never give a license To a man who drives a sleigh and plays with elves Grandma got run over by a reindeer Walking home from our house Christmas Eve You can say there's no such thing as Santa But as for me and Grandpa, we believe Sing it with us, Grandpa! Grandma got run over by a reindeer Walking home from our house Christmas Eve You can say there's no such thing as Santa But as 